Hi there, my name's Sarah Fox, and you're listening to Here in the Gorge. In this episode, you'll hear one piece of a much larger history. It considers a fight for civil rights that is uniquely connected to the Pacific Northwest and the ensuing violence, the fish wars, that took place right here in our own backyard. A quick heads up that this episode contains some adult language, and you should know that we followed up this episode with a Here in the Gorge live event in Hood River, Oregon. The audio from that event is now available online. It includes behind-the-scenes stories from the podcast and a conversation with special guest Terry Brigham, who's the woman that you're about to hear from right now. Are you a morning person, Terry? Oh, hell no. (laughs) I'm a night person. But during fishing season, I'm a morning person. (laughs) It's Thursday morning, early morning, and I'm riding along in the backseat of Terry Brigham's truck. Terry's the manager of her family's business, the Brigham Fish Market, which means sometimes she's at the market, and sometimes she's going fishing, like this morning. And technically it is the morning, even though it's still dark out and rainy and cold. It's barely 6 a.m. and it sort of seems like things are off to a rough start. Oh man, I can't believe I left my hair out. Terry left her rubber jacket and pants outside last night. Now they're soaked. On a day like today, that gear is pretty much the only thing that'll keep a fisherman dry. Or maybe I should say, fisherwoman. I gotta tell you some story real quick. I was uh, fishing with my cousin, and he's a big man. And he was like, God, I didn't know what it was like to be, you know, fishing with a girl. I even told my son, I know what it's like to be fishing with a girl. And he said it again. I would be like fishing with a girl. And I looked at him and go, me neither. And my mom and my dad started laughing. He, he looked and I'm like, I'm like, I've been doing this since I was eight. I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's your problem? I have a vagina and not a penis? <laughs> that, that was your problem? I mean, come on. Terry doesn't mince her words. But all teasing aside, she also says that working with her family is one of the best parts of her job. Everybody's like, oh, God, family business has to be hard. Well, it kind of depends on the family. Terry and her sister Kim started the Brigham Fish Market back in 2014. The market's in Cascade Locks, Oregon, a little town 40 minutes east of Portland and right on the banks of the Columbia River. I stopped in one day, and out came Terry. She might not fit the stereotype of a fisherman, but when it comes to the market, she knows her seafood. I had somebody go, how fresh is this? I'm like, I caught it last night. And she says, do you have anything fresher? And I, <laughs> it shocked me because I'm like, when they say fresh in Safeway, you know that's like six days old, right? <laughs> Terry knows her fish and she knows where it comes from like really knows where it comes from. Because nearly all the seafood sold at the market has been caught by a member of Terry's family. And when they can't get what they need, they'll buy it from other local fishermen, but not just any fishermen. Then we'll buy from local tribal members. 
Terry and her family are members of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation. And that's really important to this story. But it was also a potential stumbling block. For me, at least. I'm thinking of, of all the things that, as a non-tribal person, I get nervous about, or I think, I'm probably doing this wrong, or I avoid interacting because I'm afraid I'm going to, like, do something incorrect. So sometimes I'll In a long and bumbling way, what I was trying to get at was simple. What did Terry want me to call her? Native American, Indian, First Nations, tribal, indigenous? Trust me, if I could have avoided the topic, I would have. It's not easy getting to know someone by leading with, what label do you prefer? But I knew that for this story, it'd come up, and I wanted to get it right. For me, at the end of the day, I, I really give two shits what you call me. I know who I am. I know what people I belong to. I know my tribe, and I know my ancestors. And... The fact that, you know, people are wrapped up in labels instead of beings, you know, you and I have a different history, you and I have a different past, a different culture. So what do I got to figure out you're German or Irish or, you know, what, whatever I make. I mean, I get how they, I mean, because we're such low numbers, how people want to label us, but, you know, we joke around. We're Indian, we're Indians, we're, uh, we're natives, we're First Nations, we're, you know, for me at the end of the day, you know, you as my friend, you know who I am. And we don't need to have a label. I'm fine with being Terry, who's a fisherman and a captain and a hunter and a single parent of three beautiful children. I get what Terry's saying, and I agree with her. I wish the labels didn't matter. But I've also learned that when it comes to fishing on the Columbia River, labels mean a lot. If you're a commercial fisherman, you follow one set of rules. If you're a sport fisherman, you follow another set of rules. And if you're a tribal fisherman, you get the idea. And some might even say that Terry's right to fish is precisely because of a label. Native American, Indian, call her what you want. Her right to fish the Columbia goes back a long ways. It was 1855 or so when the U.S. government and tribes like Terry's made a deal. Several deals, actually. These were called treaties. Agreements between two sovereign nations. We'll get to the details of those later, but for now, the key is this. Each of those treaties was unique. But here in the Northwest, there was one critical thing that they all had in common. The tribes may give up their land, but they would never give up their right to fish. And that right still exists today, nearly two centuries later. In fact, our U.S. Constitution considers those treaties, and others like them, the supreme law of the land. Which all seems to make tribal fishing rights seem pretty clear and set in stone. But then Terry told me this story about her dad and her uncle fishing. It's from back in the 1960s, more than a century after the treaties were signed. Dad said they, that they would put out a net 
that was tied on the shore and with their boat go up around the corner, put on another net, come back. And by the time they come back, which is probably 15 minutes later, uh, somebody had cut the rope on the shore and letting it flow down river. Someone had cut the net loose on purpose. And this wasn't a one-time deal. In fact, there was a time when stuff like this was happening all the time to Indian fishermen. They were harassed nonstop. You know, like they didn't have a right to be there. They didn't have a right to do what they were doing. and Like they didn't have a right to fish. So what changed? How do we go from a treaty right to someone feeling like they were being harassed nonstop? This story may be one of the oldest civil rights battles that we have in the Pacific Northwest. And some will tell you, it's still going on. It's about 6.30 a.m. now. We've picked up Terry's nephew and grabbed their fishing boat. So where are we headed to first, Terry? We're going to the Cascade Locks launch. That's the boat launch, not far from Terry's house. Terry told me she needs to check her gill nets this morning. But clearly, I have no idea what that yeah. means. And so you'll go out, you'll, you're gonna take the boat out with one net, drop the net, leave it, or? No, the net's already out there. Oh, okay. And so you'll take the boat out, grab this net, and come back. Yeah, just run it. What's that mean? Just um, take the fish out of it. How many fish do you think might be? Oh, yesterday was five. So hopefully it stays the same. Not any worse. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. For anyone who depends on fishing to make a living, there are no guarantees. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And here in the Northwest, that game is particularly crowded. Yeah, you just don't get to come down here with a boat and throw out a net and think, hey, that's mine. That's a good spot. No, somebody probably already has that. <laughs> They're going to let you know that, no, <laughs> that's not yours. Terry and her family have been fishing this first spot for a long time, long enough to have given it a name. The one we have out here we call Sweetheart Hole. <laughs> Sweetheart Hole? Yeah. How come? Because it used to be really, really good. <laughs> when, did it, when did it stop being good? <clears throat> I don't know, like this last year. <laughs> I don't know. Places fill in. Currents change. Sometimes it just doesn't fish like it used to. Terry says they've changed some things up. They're hoping to get the spot living up to its name again. But they don't have a lot of time. When's fishing season done? Unfortunately, it might be done this week. Four tribes have the right to fish this section of the Columbia River, between the Bonneville Dam and the McNary Dam. It's 150 miles of river known as Zone 6. The fishing seasons are managed through a unique relationship between the tribes and the states, in this case, Oregon and Washington. But that's no easy task, for a lot of reasons. They've got to take into account where people are fishing and who those fishermen are. Commercial, sport, tribal. Then, and this may be the trickiest part, 
they need to estimate the number of fish available for harvest. Of course, trying to get an accurate fish count is sort of like trying to hit a moving target. If they get it right, hopefully everyone gets their fair share of fish. But get it wrong? And the run's downgraded and, oh, guess what? You don't get to fish. We get nothing. But it hasn't always been like this. This amateur video was shot in 1932. It's from the Washington State Library. You know, taking this picture this way, you get this whole, whole background up here. They're down across from there. It's in black and white, and the footage is pretty shaky, which actually kind of feels appropriate. This is Salilo Falls. Salilo Falls on the Columbia River. The scene is dramatic because Salilo is not just one waterfall. It's multiple falls. It's cascades and rapids. The sound alone tells you how powerful this place is. But the tourists shooting the video, they're not here to see the water. They're here to see the fishermen. You ready? We're going to start in now and try to give you a panorama of this uh, fish industry here. Starting on this side, we're looking to Washington across the Columbia. Now we're coming back in, and you can notice over the farther end of the falls there, why that there are all some 50, 75 Indians over there catching fish. Then you come over here. In the 1930s, when this film was shot, Salilo was the place to be for tribal fishermen. It wasn't uncommon for tens of millions of salmon to pass through the falls each year. And that's pretty much how it'd been for as long as anyone could remember. The fishing at Salilo was so good and so consistent that it was a natural epicenter for trade. Imagine that. Tribes from all over came to this place. And eventually non-tribal folks did as well. Salilo was so important to commerce that some have taken to calling it the Wall Street of the West. But it wasn't just goods that were being exchanged. This was a cultural center. For hundreds of generations, Salilo Falls anchored tribes to the Columbia River. They mixed, they mingled, and they organized their lives around fish. In the old film, you can see these wood platforms. They just jut out from the rocks. It almost looks like someone was starting to build a rickety bridge across the water and then just stopped. And at the end of each of these platforms, hovering out there over the water, is a person. Sometimes more than one. These are the tribal fishermen. They are fishing from these wooden scaffolds. This industry is certainly something. These Indians here fish all year round. Uh, each one of them takes a turn out there. When uh, uh, one man catches three fish, then the next man takes it. Sometimes they get a big one and sometimes they get a little one. Each fisherman holds a long pole that's attached to a net. This is a dip net. The fisherman plunges the net into the water and holds it there. When he feels a bump, he yanks the pole up as fast as he can, hand over hand, hoping that a fish has swum into his net and that he can pull it up before it swims out. Which all sounds sort of impossible, right? That you could just scoop a fish out of a raging river. Except that right there in the video, you see them do it. 
over and over again. Ian just caught this big fish. It weighs about 35 pounds. Look at the grin on his face. Is he happy? Another big one come in, about 25 pounds. Jesus, look at that thing there. Holy There's not as much platform fishing on the Columbia these days. You can still see the platforms here and there. They'll be tucked in above an eddy or hanging out from a cliff. But there's no platforms at Salilo anymore. There's also no sound of raging water either. In 1957, the Dalles Dam was built and Salilo Falls was flooded. Which raises the question, when a river changes, what happens to the people who rely on it? So, um, I mean, maybe I can provide a little bit of historical context for all of this. I would love that. <laughs> um, sure. This is Dylan Hedden Nicely. He's the director of the Native American Law Program at the University of Idaho. Dylan's also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, but he grew up here in the Northwest. I called Dylan up to see if he could help me understand tribal fishing from a legal perspective. He said that to do that, you have to go back to 1855, to the treaties. Quite literally, what these treaties are for is the tribe is agreeing to cede ownership of all of that land except for whatever land is reserved as their, as their permanent homeland, their reservation. Remember, these treaties are the deals that were made between the tribes and the U.S. government, deals between two sovereign nations. So these treaties are the reason why we have Indian reservations, land reserved exclusively for the tribes. These treaties are also why the U.S. government was able to acquire almost all of the land in the Pacific Northwest in just a matter of months. We're talking about millions of acres of land, you know, essentially all of all of Western Washington, um, essentially the entire Columbia River corridor within Washington or Oregon, just east of Portland. You know, all Even up into Idaho and over the mountains into Montana. Negotiations happened quickly, often entirely in English and with very sparse tribal representation. It was not uncommon for Indians to be out fishing, hunting, or harvesting seasonal foods and not even know that negotiations were taking place. Which brings us to the other very important part of these treaties, what the tribes got out of them. And this is where fishing comes in. Because even though each treaty is unique, each one involved a different tribe in a different place, there is one very specific thing that every single one of them includes. All of these tribes reserved the exclusive right to take fish in the streams running through or bordering the reservations as well as the right to fish at all of their usual and accustomed stations in common with the citizens of the United States. The right to fish at all their usual and accustomed stations, which is sort of legalese for the tribes have always fished here and they will continue to fish here. The tribes make this very clear. They may be ceding the land, but they are keeping their right to fish. It was a matter of life or death. You know, their entire life cycle revolved around when the fish came, when the fish left, when the game came, when the game left. You know, it was the way that they survived. And so it just made absolute perfect sense that um, 
if they were going to retire to a reservation that didn't allow them to continue to do that, they weren't going to be able to survive. And so they are connected to this place in a way that we just cannot understand. So with just a few quick strokes of a pen, the 1855 treaties transform ownership of a vast part of the Pacific Northwest over to the U.S. government. And the tribes retain their right to fish. And so it's really, in a lot of ways, the perfect compromise. You know, the United States needed the land, but the tribes and the tribal members needed to continue to be able to use the land. And so long as everybody continues to behave in a respectful manner, it, it, it could have worked out perfectly. Terry's back from checking her first net at Sweetheart Hole. It all took about a half hour. And you've got to have a tribal ID to be out in a fishing boat in this section. So I waited back in the truck. They load the boat on the trailer and pull it out of the water. And once we're all back in the truck, I ask Terry how things went. Aw, it wasn't a sweetheart. <laughs> we caught three. And uh, now we're off to, to Wyatt. Check those other nets. Wyeth is just east of Cascade Locks. Once we get there, Terry and her nephew will repeat the same routine. Put the boat in the water, zoom off to check the nets for fish, bring the fish back to the cooler, load the boat on the trailer, repeat. And as I watch all this happen, I can't help but feel that it seems like a whole lot of effort for not that many fish. You know, it's something that we've done. And something that, you know, over the years, you know, when you're a teenager, you're like, oh, God, do I have to do this? As we grew older, it was like, you know, we just enjoy it. I didn't realize how much I enjoyed it until I was away from it. Terry was a classic small-town kid. She grew up in Cascade Locks, and as soon as she hit 18, she was out of there. You know, I live, I lived in Seattle for about 15 years, and I worked in the casino business, and I was indoors 10, 12 hours a day, just working indoors. When I came back to Cascade Locks, it was, <sighs> God, I'm here. I mean, just driving down I-84 and finally see the river, I was like, yeah. I love what I do. You know, everybody has a different place that they call home. I mean, I've been out in zero degrees. The water hits my rain gear and freezes immediately. I've dislocated my shoulder out there. I've literally got my ass handed to me. I mean, I could have the shittiest fucking day in the world. And then I hit the water. And I don't care how bad, how rough it is. And how cold it is and it's just oh, yeah you're back here just where you belong so remember that potentially perfect compromise you know the united states needed the land but the tribes and the tribal members needed to continue to be able to use the land well no surprise things didn't work out perfectly let's take a minute and back up here here in the Northwest, there used to be a whole bunch of tribes and bands of Indians. And for the most part, 
nobody else. These Indians were able to live off the land, rely on the rivers, and organize their lives around the natural bounty of this place. And this wasn't just for a few generations, or a few dozen. We're talking hundreds of generations. But eventually word got out, and pretty soon a whole bunch of other people started to head this way. Only these people aren't part of any indigenous tribe. This was Oregon Trail time, and these settlers were heading west in hopes of a better life. At first, it was just handfuls of people. But by the mid-1800s, they started coming by the hundreds of thousands. And even though it was hard traveling, and a lot of them died along the way, it was worth the risk. Because the U.S. government had made them a promise. Come settle out west, and we'll give you some land. Free land. And the reason the government had this land was because of the treaties. And so they acquire, the United States acquires title to all this land. And what they do is they immediately turn around and they start offering it to non-Indian homesteaders. And of course, the very first place where the non-Indian homesteaders go is, you know, the Willamette area to farm. But then the other really choice place is right along the Columbia River because there's a very lucrative fishery. And at the center of that very lucrative fishery is the Pacific salmon, which is pretty much one of the most badass fish around. Here in the Pacific Northwest, salmon have been at the heart of human civilization for as long as anyone can remember. People quite literally survived because of these fish. And local tribes still celebrate the return of the salmon in annual first food ceremonies. Salmon are simply an icon of the Northwest. And for many, it's the salmon life cycle that gives them their superhero status. And once you hear the story of it, you understand why it gets told again and again and again. It goes like this. If you're a Pacific salmon, you start your life way up in some cold mountain stream. And then, when you get old enough, you hit the road. Which in this case, is a river. The Columbia River, in fact. Here in the Northwest, the Columbia is basically your super highway to the Pacific Ocean. And you've got to get out to the ocean because that's where you will actually spend most of your life. You'll be out in that salt water eating up all the yummy food it has to offer. You'll get big and you'll get strong, which is a good thing because eventually you got to go home. You've got to get back to that cold mountain stream where your life began. It's the only way for the next generation of salmon to have a chance. So as your life is nearing an end, you head up the Columbia and you swim like your life depends on it. Because it does. But it's not easy. You are swimming against the current of a river that sends more water to the Pacific Ocean than any other river in North America. You swim and fight your way until you find that stream, and then you turn off and head home. And if you can make it that far, from the ocean, past the predators, over the dams, and up the river, then you are responsible for starting the salmon life cycle all over again. And so you spawn, and then you die, and before long, another generation of salmon begins. That incredible life cycle has always been a part of tribal life in the area. 
And when the newcomers started heading out west, it became part of their life too, but in a different way. It didn't take long for the settlers to realize there was money to be made off salmon. Large-scale commercial fishing took hold of the Columbia. Fish canneries started popping up along the river. Now, it was no longer the tribes who were harvesting the bulk of the fish. Now it was everyone else. And the canneries had found a new way to catch salmon faster and in larger amounts than ever before. And eventually, and they start using these contraptions called fish wheels, which effectively channels all of the fish in the, in, within a wide swath of the river into a what looks like a giant um, conveyor belt, and then they basically just scoop them all out. Fish wheels could harvest huge numbers of salmon with astounding efficiency. There's reports of one wheel that supposedly caught 227,000 pounds of salmon in a single day. So, of course, the best place to put the fish wheels was in all the prime fishing locations, which is exactly what Audubon and Linnaeus Winans did. The Winans brothers put their fish wheel right next to Celilo Falls, because now they owned that land. The brothers actually owned a bunch of land along the Columbia, and they were making a killing with their fish wheel. But there was a problem. The brothers were getting real tired of Indians crossing their property to go fishing. Because as far as the Winans could see it, the tribes had their reservations, where Indians had exclusive fishing rights. The brothers wouldn't be allowed to fish there, so why should the Indians be allowed to trespass on Winans' property and fish in the Columbia River? But if you're an Indian, turns out none of your reservations even touch the Columbia River, the fish superhighway. And of course, you want to be able to fish there too. So the Winans take their case to court. This is in 1905. And the case ends up going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court with one very important question. Does the tribe have the right to fish at these off-reservation locations? In other words, do the tribes have the right to fish the Columbia River? And so the case shows up at the Supreme Court. The justices listen to both sides. They take a close look at the treaties. And right away, the court hones in on one particular phrase. All of these tribes reserve the right to fish at all of their usual and accustomed stations. In common with the citizens of the United States. Each of the treaties has this phrase. But what does it actually mean? Up until this point, there's been no actual legal definition for usual and accustomed stations. But the Supreme Court is about to change that. The Supreme Court finds that it means just what it says, that the tribes have reserved a right to continue to access the Columbia River for the purpose of, of fishing, which is why these tribes can go and fish along the Columbia River to this day. There's actually this comment in the court's decision, which basically says that the Indians' right to fish their usual and accustomed places is as essential to their existence as the air they breathe. It's almost 9 a.m. when Terry and her nephew get back from checking the nets at Wyeth. It's not a tree. You caught a tree? Can't imagine that's worth too much. Yeah. They load their catch, the fish that is, into large containers in the bed of the truck. They pull the boat out of the water and we're back on the road. Now it's time to get the fish ready for the market. 
Um, we're just gonna unload the fish and clean them, weigh them, ice them down, put them away. We head back to the place where the boat was parked this morning. Now that it's light out, I can see that it's more than just a driveway. There's a couple of tables, big metal ones, a scale. At the end of the driveway is a big ice maker. And once we get everything unloaded, Terry gets to work cleaning the fish. The throat's already been slit. So you can pull them out, slice right up the middle. I watch as Terry slips her knife into a fish. She told me, you want to drain the blood as soon as possible. Keeps the fish fresh. Next, cut out the gills. Slice up the middle of the belly. Pull out the eggs if there are any. There's the windpipe and the stomach. Run the knife along the spine, scrape it all out, and then pass the fish down the table to get sprayed off and weighed. 53. It takes Terry about a minute to clean each fish. And by this afternoon, They'll be at the Brigham Fish Market. How old were you when you first cleaned a fish? Oh, I'm not sure. I was little. How old before I got good at it? <laughs> Probably than that. Terry caught 12 fish today and a tree, which is disappointing. She says this time of year is typically the peak of the season and the fish are supposed to be running. But a lot has changed on this river. In 1928, Oregon banned the use of fish wheels. Not long after, Washington followed suit. But the damage had already been done. The wheels and the rise of the commercial fish industry had hammered Columbia River fish. And then came the dams. In this hour of need, America looked westward to her last great hydroelectric reservoir. In this old Bonneville power film, it's all about the potential of dams for flood control, greater navigation, irrigation water for agriculture, and hydropower. In the Northwest, she found the great new source of power to meet the challenge, the Columbia River. Unfortunately, dams also meant a whole lot more trouble for the fish. They flooded crucial habitat, cranked up water temperatures, and created some pretty legitimate obstacles to migrating salmon. Dams have had such an effect that some fish now get a ride. Keep your eye on the Columbia and eventually you'll see one of the fish barges. Large vessels carrying juvenile salmon downriver. It saves the young fish the hassle and risk of passing through the dams on their way to the ocean. But the road's still rough and it's a one-way ticket. When it's time to return home and spawn, it's all up to the fish to make it there alive. In spite of all this, the salmon have somehow survived, but populations are far from what they used to be. You hear people tell stories about the Columbia. They talk about a time when the river was so chock full of salmon that you could practically walk across the water on their backs. Now, those same fish are on the endangered species list. Which could make you think that this is just a fish problem, a numbers problem. But the reality is that as soon as those numbers started dropping, this fish problem turned into a people problem. You have a situation where what was once the most prolific fishery really anywhere is in steep decline. And that decline 
eventually hit its breaking point. Remember the labels? Commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, tribal fishermen? Well, when the fish populations start to dwindle, those labels begin to really matter. And by the time the 1960s roll around, the states, Oregon and Washington in this case, are increasingly trying to regulate fishing in the name of conservation. Through things like fishing licenses, catch limits, fishing seasons, and even the regulation of fishing methods. But tribal fishermen pose a unique challenge for the states. The real rub was, you know, frankly, whether the tribe should have to should have to fish consistent with state law at all or whether they have this reserve treaty right that supersedes state law. If you are a tribal fisherman, do you have to play by the same rules as all the other fishermen? Or do you play by the rules of your treaty? And if you're the state, well, how do you go about managing salmon populations if you don't have control over everyone who's fishing? Still, the bottom line was this. Fish populations were plummeting, and something had to give. And so what happens is the state of Washington primarily, but also the state of Oregon, um, uses its police power um, to effectively prevent tribal people from fishing without a state license. Certain fishing methods were being outlawed as well. Things like spearing, netting, gill nets, all methods of fishing that the Indians relied on. And, you know, I don't think that you can really get too far uh, without um, just acknowledging the fact that there was probably uh, quite a bit of racism that was going on. Um, You can't blame the dams. The the dams in 1960 are pretty popular. Um, Commercial fishing is uh, firing on all cylinders. And so I think that uh, to a certain extent, you got to find a scapegoat. By the 1960s, Indians were catching just a small percentage of the total fish harvest. By some estimates, just 2 to 5 percent. Still, they became a target. My uncle had a trooper one year. Oh, I can't see the markings on on the buoy or on the corks or whatever. So this trooper put a rope around the net and drug it by his truck up on shore, the 400-foot net. The net was ruined, torn up after being dragged across stumps and bushes on shore. There'd been challenges to tribal fishing rights almost as soon as the treaties were signed. And while some of the challenges ended up in court, many remained local and were often personal. Like the time Terry's uncle and dad parked their boat at a launch. When they came back to get it, the boat wouldn't start. Turns out, somebody had poured sugar in the gas tank. By the 1960s, it had been more than a century since the treaties had been signed. But treaty rights were being challenged as much as ever. The back and forth between states and tribes was escalating, while at the same time, salmon populations were falling. So given all this, I guess what happened next shouldn't be that surprising. It was just a really, really tense situation, and you know, and I'd imagine that probably a lot of people behaved in a way that they, in retrospect, uh, regretted. 
Maybe what's most surprising is not what happened next, but that it seems to have been so largely forgotten. Tribal members would go and fish and they would um, get arrested and beat up and really put under some extreme and terrible conditions by uh, state fish and game officials. And that's where, you know, that's where the fishing wars kind of come in. At their most basic, the fish wars were battles between the tribes and the states over the right to fish. These disagreements had been going on for decades, but in the mid-1960s, the movement really took hold. Tribes formed coalitions to defend their treaty rights. In the film As Long as the Rivers Run, a Nisqually woman from Washington explains the tribe's position. There are treaties throughout the United States being broken. That's really what it is, a treaty we're fighting for. We resisted when they did try to take our net because it is our property, and not only protecting our property, but ourselves, because we too have been clubbed, night raids, tear gassed, and we're getting sick and tired of it. We have this fishing right. It's a treaty supreme law of the land under their constitution, and we're not going to give up our fishing rights. Tribes organized civil disobedience campaigns around fishing rights. But instead of sit-ins, like the ones being used in the black civil rights movement, the tribes organized fish-ins. We uh, staged a uh, fish-in down here at Frank's Landing. This was a demonstration to, uh, to put uh, the problem before the public. We said that we were going to demonstrate this right by going out and going fishing, which we feel is a passive way of resisting this force used against us. Indians would purposely fish in opposition to state regulations in order to bring attention to the laws they felt were violating their treaty rights. Like you can see in this old footage of two Indian fisherwomen. The two women are in a boat together. One wears a handkerchief tied over her hair. She's in the back of the boat, paddling. The other woman the one standing in the blue sweater, is laying out a fishing net in the river. Both of them seem calm, peaceful even. Then, two men motor over in another boat. They pull the women's fishing net from the water. It runs taut between the two boats. But the women remain seated, calmly holding on to one end of the net as the men putter their boat back to shore, pulling the women in their boat along with them. It almost looks like everyone has rehearsed this scene before, and they're annoyed at having to do it over again. They barely even seem to acknowledge each other. When they get to the shore, the woman won't let go of the net. They hang on to it as they're pulled out of their boat. Their bodies drop onto the dirt and are dragged up the shoreline. The women are accused of fishing illegally, of poaching, And maybe they were. Depends on who you ask. A Washington Department of Game official explains his actions during another fish-in. We decided we would put our boats on the opposite side of the river to minimize the mingling with the uh, huge crowd of uh, Indians and uh, newspaper people that was there. And 
When we went across the river, they started throwing clubs, and uh, so we had to bring in our full force and uh, arrest anyone who had resisted or interfered with us in the performance of our duty. This sort of civil disobedience by the tribes was happening all over the country. But here in the Northwest, the fish wars garnered more attention than anywhere else. Now the state of Washington wants them to stop fishing, favoring new canning factories and sportsmen bringing tourist dollars into the... You may recognize the voice from this short film. It was produced in the 1960s, and the narrator is actor Marlon Brando. ...continue to hunt and to fish in their usual and accustomed grounds, as long as the river... He, along with a handful of celebrities, joined the fight on behalf of the tribes. In fact, Brando himself was arrested following his participation in a fishing in Washington state. As the states continued to crack down on tribal fishing, the protests continued to escalate, and so did the violence. I came upon one game warden, and he had my two nieces by the hair, and he was pounding one of their faces into a log. And, and the state came down in a large force of about 50 game and fisheries warden to put down a group of eight adults and about 30 children ranging from two years old on up to 17. And they just took over the Indian scene, you might say. And then came the fall of 1970. The conflict between the tribes and the states came to a head. There was a raid at a large fish camp up in Washington state. Tribal members and some non-tribal members were present at the scene, including the U.S. attorney, Stanley Pitkin, who was there to observe. Things quickly got out of control. People were arrested. There was a firebomb. And rumor has it that even the U.S. attorney was caught in the crossfire of tear gas. Which may be part of the reason that just nine days later, the U.S. government filed suit against the state of Washington for violating treaties with Indian nations. And that became United States versus Washington, um, which is the Bolt decision. The Bolt decision. Named after George Hugo Bolt, the judge in the case. And when it comes to treaty fishing rights... If the Winans case is one end of this legal bookend, then the Bolt decision is the other. So the first thing to know about the Bolt decision is it doesn't implicate the Columbia River per se. That's right. Technically, the Columbia River was not part of this case. But the Bolt decision ultimately set a precedent that affected the entire Northwest, the Columbia River, and beyond. And the crucial piece, the thing that brings this story full circle, is that once again, that phrase from the treaties comes into play. The right to fish at all of their usual and accustomed stations in common with the citizens of the United States. Only this time, instead of paying attention to the first part, the usual and accustomed part, now the court considered the second half of the phrase. In common with the citizens of the United States. In common with the citizens of the United States. The court needed to figure out what that meant. They needed to come up with the legal definition for in common. So there's witnesses and testimony. They even go back and look at the minutes from the original treaty negotiations to try and figure it out. And finally, after three years, a decision is made. The big uh, crux of the 
Bolt decision is that where the words in common. This old newsreel sums up Judge Bolt's decision. Which uh, Bolt has decided means 50% of all the fish go to the Indians. According to Bolt, the in common language meant that the tribe should have equal access to the fish, as in a 50-50 split. Indians can catch 50%, non-Indians can catch 50%. Which was a huge bump up from the tiny numbers that the Indians were currently catching. And not everyone liked that, like these commercial fishermen who were interviewed by a news station following the Bolt decision. The Indians uh, are having more fishing time than the white fishermen, and, and they, they don't need that. Uh, the Indian fishermen that were fishing, they, they competed with us, all right. They got along. And their frustration wasn't unfounded. The 50-50 regulation meant that some non-tribal fishermen were now out of a job. Because the only way to make up that difference, to get to 50-50, was to put new limits on the amount of fish that could be caught by non-tribal fishermen meaning they could no longer legally catch enough fish to stay in the commercial fishing business. In an ironic flip, some commercial fishermen chose to ignore the decision altogether. So now it was the non-tribal fishermen who were disobeying state regulations and continuing to fish. I'm going to continue fishing, period. I mean, there's, you know, I have no doubt in my mind, and I don't think the State Department of Fisheries has any doubt in their mind that we're going to, myself and other people like me, are going to fish every day that an Indian fishes. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's just until they decide to put us in jail. That's all. Someone hung a Judge Bolt effigy outside the federal courthouse. And the U.S. Coast Guard and National Marine Fisheries Service eventually had to be called in to enforce the Bolt ruling. And to me, what this decision has really done is created a super citizen. It means that uh, I'm not really an equal citizen to the Indian. He's a super citizen to anybody in the United States. There remained a feeling among many that the Indians were being given special rights. That tribal treaty rights were unfair to everyone else. Which seems to forget one very important thing. These rights were never given to the tribes. They were the rights the tribes held on to. We are all beneficiaries of these treaties. The tribes gave up an incredible amount when they entered into these treaties, and the United States acquired an incredible amount of prosperity. And there's very little recognition of that. And instead, the view is, is oh, well, these tribes have these special rights these special fishing rights. And, and there's very little recognition for what the tribes gave up to reserve those rights. So what's the plan now, Terry? Uh, drop off Brigham, pick up my son, and go home and shower. Okay. So we drop off Terry's nephew, grab her kid, and the day is done. Take your stinky gear. Done for me, at least. Hey, I'll call you for what time? Is that for tomorrow morning? No, it's for tonight. Okay. Tonight, Terry and her nephew will go and check all the nets again. Outside, I can see Terry's youngest child, Elliot. 
He was coming out of the house and headed our way. Do you remember your backpack? Oh no, I didn't grab it. Okay. I got the boots. Okay. Um, hey, grab your backpack and the cup that goes with this. Elliot goes and grabs his stuff and then hops back in the truck. Once he's settled, I can tell he's kind of interested in my microphone. So while his mom drops a couple things off at the fish market, we decide to record an impromptu interview about his fishing. So right now, I'm in the car with Elliot Brigham. E-L-L-I-O-T? Yes. What's your middle name? Brigham. What's your middle? Do you have a middle name? Yeah, that's Brigham. My, my last name's Watchman. Got it. So what, what would you like me to call you? Um, I don't know. You pick. Do you have a nickname? Uh, I don't think so. Do you want a nickname? Oh, what is it then? I don't know. Boy, we just met, so it's hard to come up with a nickname that fast. Um, Blackberry. I like it a lot. So I'm here talking with Elliot Blackberry Brigham. Watchman. Watchman. He is 18 years old. Not 18, eight. Oh, he's only eight years old. He seems like he might be eight, 18 years old because he has already caught a fish. Two big fish. Wait, how many fish have you caught? Two big fish and one little fish. And one little fish. Mm-hmm. And where did you go to catch them? Um, on the scaffold. That's where I caught my big, other uh, big fish. On the scaffold. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you caught that fish? Seven. Or six. Seven or six. When I listen to Elliot talk about fishing, it reminds me of something Terry told me. When I asked her what she thinks the future of fishing looks like here on the Columbia. God, I hope it's still here. I mean, I really do. Of all the things we talked about... That was probably the most surprising thing she said. I just, I, I want, I want Elliot and Belle and the next several generations to be able to do what I do. I mean, maybe it's not the river for everybody, but I hope, I hope that they get to do it. When Terry gets back in the car, Elliot's ready to do his own interview. So I hand him my headphones and mic and push record. Let's put this in your ear here. You can go this ear. You wear earbuds before? Okay, point point the point at your mom's mouth. Okay, I'll check the volume. What do you want to ask your mom? Got any question right now? Put her on the spot. Um... Who taught you to go fishing? Who taught me to go fishing? My dad and my mom. I started fishing about the same age you did. Were you seven when you did that? I was probably around seven. But I was always around fishing. Did you catch did you catch your first fish? Yep. What was it? It was probably a sockeye. And how feet was it? How was it? <laughs> it was about five pounds. Sockeyes are little. Did you, didn't they take a picture of you? I don't remember, but I remember eating it with the family. 
Just like we did yours. Yep, we ate my big fish. My name is Elliot, and I'm a fisherman. Special thanks to Travel Oregon, who helped to fund this episode of Here in the Gorge. Thanks also to our sponsors, Portland Spirit Cruises and Events, Mount Adams Chamber of Commerce, Columbia Gorge Discovery Center, Bridgeside and Riverside Restaurants, Mary Hill Museum of Art, and Wet Planet Whitewater. There's also been a huge number of people that I've leaned on for help and expertise for this episode. At one point or another, all of these people have taken my call responded to emails, loaned me books, or spoken with me in person. Thanks to Sarah Thompson, Chief Johnny Jackson, Chief Wilbur Slockish, Paul Lumley, Buck Jones, Brett Vandenhuvel, Greg Kuntz, Lucius Caldwell, Jeanette Burkhart, Greg Warner, Kat Arndt, Colin Fogarty, and Gardner Johnston. A huge thanks to Dylan Hedden Nicely, Director of the Native American Law Program at the University of Idaho. And of course, especially to Terry Brigham, to Elliot, and to the entire Brigham family. And remember, if you want to get a little bit more of Here in the Gorge and of Terry Brigham, then I hope you'll give a listen to our recent live event. You can find it at hereinthegorge.com. That's H-E-A-R in the gorge.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The eagle in the sky. This episode had editorial support from Ibi Caputo. It includes audio from footage in the collection of Hank Adams, from the film As Long as the Rivers Run, produced by Carol Burns and Hank Adams, and from the Bonneville Power Administration film collection. The episode includes the songs One Quiet Conversation, Balti, and Discovery Harbor, all by Blue Dot Session. Small Daffs by Axeltree. The Johnny Ripper remix of Free From All Sense of Purpose by Blythe Field. It's Lonely Around People Too by Mountain Range. And from the soundtrack of As Long As The Rivers Run, the song Wild As The Eagle In The Sky. If you like what you hear, find out more at hereinthegorge.com. And if you haven't already, Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Most of all, thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fox, and this is Here in the Gorge. Come be as wild as the eagle in the sky. Free to love and to live and to die. We'll roam this land from the mountains to the sea. Brother to the elf.